Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson. On today's episode, we hear from our correspondent, Molly Miller, and her conversation with New York Times correspondent, Lauren Hurstick, about the last days of the Weinstein trial. That's all coming up right after the break. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We begin today's installment with part one of the chat between jury duty correspondent Molly Miller and New York Times correspondent Lauren Herstick about the last days of the Los Angeles trial of Harvey Weinstein before the jury began their deliberations. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be back. So this week, the defense put on its case over the course of two days. Can you tell us about the witnesses that testified for the defense? Yeah, so um, they brought up six witnesses. They went pretty quickly through them. Most of them were there to just nail down some basic logistical facts. So first we had Samuel Jagger, who was the general manager at Mr. C's at the time that Jane Doe 1 stayed there. She was the Italian actress who uh, the alleged assault occurred during the L.A. International Film Festival. He was there to explain the folio uh, in Jane Doe One's room, which was the record of everything that she ordered, purchased, complaints she made. So basically the receipt plus some complaints. Yes, he he was there to show receipts. The argument with him was that the defense was trying to show that uh, she had made complaints about mundane things. Why didn't she call to complain about the rapist who barged into her room in the middle of the night Hmm. you know and he she did not make that complaint um i think it was just kind of a an attempt to say well wouldn't that be the rational logical thing to do if you were a victim which as we know there is no rational logical victim behavior then we had joanne jansen who was the choreographer on dirty dancing 2 havana nights um she was called in relation to Ashley M., who was the letter uh, witness, who was the dancer in Puerto Rico um, on the set of Dirty Dancing 2, she was asked if she knew Ashley M., could she testify to any of the claims having to do with being taken from set, meetings with Mr. Weinstein. She said she never met her, no idea who she was, never seen her before in her life. It's probably interesting to note that she has worked on multiple Weinstein projects, Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's neither here nor there, but she has been on the payroll. Then we had Matthew Morocco, who was from the L.A. Fire Department. He was there to talk about uh, the alleged fire alarm that went off during the time Jane Doe 1's assault was supposed to have taken place. He confirmed that an alarm did go off, and he sort of explained how fire alarms worked. 
we had Beverly Hills PD detective Stephanie Frias, who was the detective that Jane Doe 1's daughter made her complaint to. Jane Doe 1's daughter is the one who put the pieces together about what happened between her mom and Harvey Weinstein in 2017. Jane Doe 1's daughter had her own issues with sexual assault, and she made an agreement with her mom that if she went and reported her assault, that her mom would go and also report her incident with Weinstein. She was there to say that when the daughter reported, Jane Doe 1 didn't say anything. And then we had FBI Special Agent Mike Easter, an expert in cell phone positioning. Um, He just reviewed cell phone records related to Jane Doe 1 on the night of the rape. And then we had Christian Sheriff, who was in charge of activities reports at Mr. C's, also confirmed the fire alarm in relation to Jane Doe 1. So that was everyone for the defense. So doesn't seem like a lot of substantive testimony just really laying the foundation for some of the defense's arguments. But overall, what do you think Alan Jackson and Mark Worksman were trying to achieve with those witnesses? My guess is that they were very much trying to undermine the credibility of Jane Doe 1. Almost all of those witnesses were in relation to Jane Doe 1. My impression is that she is perhaps the most, if any of the witnesses are slam dunks, it's probably her. Slam dunks for the prosecution or defense? I think she's the most believable. Her testimony was emotional and raw and very real. So I think um, I think the defense knows that they're sort of on their heels with her. And so they wanted to find as, mu- as many cracks in the armor as they could with her. Thus, so much talk of this fire alarm. Right. Which, you know, proved that a fire alarm probably went off that night, but doesn't necessarily move the needle on whether or not a sexual assault happened. Right. Because if I'm correct in my understanding, they have been trying to say this entire time that that Jane Doe 1 was not even in the hotel that night. Yes. And because if she had been in that hotel, she would have heard the fire alarm and she would have noted that in her descriptions of the alleged sexual assault. Right. They also argue that the timing of the fire alarm is falls into the exact period that the timing of the alleged assault occurred. And so that that also precludes it ever having happened. How could you continue to rape through a blaring fire alarm? But I think that that's always been a shaky argument because Jane Doe 1 has been very clear about the fact that she doesn't know exactly what time she came back to the hotel or what time Weinstein showed up at her room or even how long the assault took place. So uh, this alarm is, I think, kind of a flimsy argument. So then did the prosecution call any rebuttal witnesses? They did. They called in Ashley M. She was the principal dancer on Dirty Dancing 2. The assault took place um, on set while they were filming in Puerto Rico. And she was the body double for the lead in that film. She was not an extra or anything in the background. And like I mentioned earlier, defense called Joanne Jansen, who was the choreographer on that production. So seemingly she 
would know Ashley M as her principal dancer. She said, never seen her, never met her before in my life. Rebuttal was pretty strong. She came in and produced call sheets from those shoot days, residuals checks. She's still getting paid from doing that role. So it's pretty clear someone is lying. It looks like she was there. Right. Lying or the choreographer's memory has lapsed, but whether or not the alleged assault occurred, it's clear that Ashley M. was on the set of Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Yeah, yeah. Stick around to hear what Lauren Hurstick said about closing arguments in the trial of Harvey Weinstein. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the next part of my conversation with Lauren, we discuss the prosecution's closing argument delivered by Deputy District Attorney Marlene Martinez. So let's get into the meat of this week. So closing arguments began on the afternoon of Wednesday, November 30th, and I can imagine that it was a pretty packed house. Can you tell me a little bit about the environment in the courtroom? Yeah, it was another big day, almost as intense as it was for openings. That was a big day. Probably the high point of this whole trial where the days Jennifer Newsom testified, that was the most packed it had been. But this this was another day where there was, you know, a lineup in the hallway to get inside and every seat was taken. I think people are relieved and very much full of anticipation to see how this trial is going to wrap up and what the closing thoughts are that the two sides are presenting to the jury. Because this has been a long, complex trial and definitely challenging for these jurors to keep all of this information in their heads over the course of the last seven weeks. So I think you could feel it in the room that there was a lot riding on this. Right. And what was the makeup of the individuals in the gallery? Is this a lot of reporters, a lot of victim supporters, attorneys? Yep. The reporters were all there. Um, the entire back bench, which is where they keep the media, was packed shoulder to shoulder. Gloria Allred was present. Uh, you also had Beth Fegan, who was Jennifer Newsom's lawyer. A lot of observers for the defense some more observers, obviously, for the prosecution, and a few um, victims who were there in solidarity. Interesting. So tell us about the narrative of the prosecution's closing argument. What did they say? Um, You know, they really, they just walked us through everything that we've heard up to this point. They walked us through each of the Jane Doe's and summarized what happened, how they told their stories, sort of trying to remind us the greatest hits of the most affecting testimony, just to maybe touch that raw nerve again in the jurors' minds, just to remind them how affecting and affected these women were by this experience. They did the same 
with the named witnesses. It was very much in keeping with what they've been doing all along, which is to really try to tell the story in these women's own words, which are the most convincing and the most effective ways to go about telling the story. And were there any recurring themes or mantras or or images in the prosecution's remarks? Yep, they were really hammering this predator and prey metaphor at one point. uh, You know, they flashed up on the screen in their PowerPoint presentation images of a a wolf uh, as the predator. There was a bear trap at one point. But I think that that was the language that they were choosing to use to establish this pattern of behavior, which is what ties together their entire argument. It's the reason that they brought in so many supporting witnesses. It's the reason there were these four other women all there to reinforce the idea that there was this predatory pattern of behavior, that Harvey Weinstein, the wolf, was choosing and tracking his prey and bringing them to his lair with these hotel rooms and attacking these women once he got them inside. And I think it was it was pretty effective. Um, I don't know that Martinez is the most commanding speaker in the room, but she was thorough. She was definitely thorough. So then how did the defense respond in their closing arguments? Uh, you know, they took a not unexpected tack. It's what I've said from the beginning was going to be their argument, was their argument, and will forever be their argument, which is that These women are not credible. They are all lying. And you can tell because of how absurd their behavior was as supposed victims. And this is Jackson. This is Alan Jackson giving the closing, correct? Yes. Alan Jackson did give the closing, which I think maybe people would have expected it to be Worksman who did the opening. He, you know, had those memorable quotes calling Jennifer Newsom, a bimbo, referring to Harvey Weinstein as Hollywood's Chernobyl after the nuclear meltdown of Me Too. So uh, I think some of us were expecting him to be the one to do it, but I do understand why it was Jackson. In on the other hand, he's got a very bulldog vibe in the way that he talks. So it was effective actually because. Martinez took the entire afternoon and then another hour the following morning to do the prosecution's closing. We had a little bit of falling asleep by the end of that. So when Jackson came up and, you know, came in hot, he kind of like woke everyone up. So he, you know, he's a great speaker and he really hammered this idea that these women are not credible. He opened with the line, take my word for it, that That's what the prosecution's argument comes down to, is simply taking the word of these women. And in order to make this argument, he his thesis was that you can divide these four women, the four charged witnesses, into two categories. You have Jane Doe's one and two, who fully just lying. This never happened. It's completely fabricated. And then you have Jane Doe's three and four, who he says are just fully recasting experiences as non-consensual because they are now embarrassed by it or in the wake of Me Too. It's just like they don't feel great that they did what they did with Mr. Weinstein. Right. So he's he's saying that these women had consensual sex with Harvey Weinstein. And then when the Me Too movement happened, they relabeled their memory of the event as a non-consensual event. Correct? Yes. And also... A big theme of their arguments throughout is that this was 
transactional sex, that it was the, uh, you know, the embodiment of the casting couch cliche in Hollywood, that this is just the way things work. You have sex in exchange for professional favors. Everybody knows what it is when they're going into it. These women knew that that's what it was when they stepped into those hotel rooms. And that's consenting, basically, is their argument. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So what was the tone of his argument? Because Worksman, Worksman was pretty sharp in his opening. And it was barbed and, I would say, offensive but it was lively. And I, it sounds like Jackson took a similar idea in that he was he was jarring the audience. Was his word choice quite as severe as Worksman's? No, they definitely toned that down. It wasn't nearly as theatrical. Yeah. I think that maybe over the course of the seven weeks, they learned that that doesn't necessarily work with the jurors. They don't totally love that extremely aggressive and almost offensive language. So it was definitely toned down. That's not to say that he went easy on any of these women. He was emphatic in calling them liars and questioning the validity of their behavior around these so-called attacks. Was there anything else you found notable about the defense closing? The thing that I thought was notable, and that's maybe just because I'm a writer, but um, the defense closings started about an hour before lunch, and then they continued for the entire rest of the afternoon. So that was almost four hours of closing arguments. And it was systematically going through each witness's story and then attacking her credibility. And the pacing of this presentation was uneven. When he started with Jane Doe 1, he went through her entire testimony for an hour and a half. So we're an hour and a half on one witness and we know we have to get to four. So, you know, that uh, that didn't feel great. Like I said before, I think Jane Doe 1 is the one they're most worried about. So I see why they spent the most time on her. But I mean, it was four hours going through all these women. So it took, it took a long time. By the time we got to Jane Doe 4, who is her own whole can of worms, Jennifer Newsom, he pulled no punches there. I think he knew that she did not win over the jury. And I think he really wanted to remind them of that very much focusing on there really was no power imbalance between her and Harvey Weinstein in the way that maybe there was with the other women, that she was an operator in the industry, that she had all that continued contact with him. They had such a positive tone in their communications. And then there's the whole issue of her husband being Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. I think it was notable that Jackson made a point of saying Gavin's name as many times as humanly possible. I assume to appeal to maybe the political leanings of the jury or just remind them that these are coastal elite, bougie, wealthy people that maybe they can't really relate to and aren't inclined to feel compassion towards. One more thing about the defense, which I just thought was kind of funny. He does this four hour closing. He gets to the end. You can feel it coming. He delivers a really succinct, powerful summary of the argument that he has just made that this is, he said, she said, take my word for it. That's not a good enough argument for court. But then he said it again in a different way. 
then he said it again in yet another different way. And I honestly think he closed his argument for 40 minutes. It was like when a movie has too many endings and you're you're just like, ah. And I thought this is ironic because, I mean, dude, your client is the most successful movie producer of all time. You're not going to like maybe let him give a notes pass on your speech. Oh, that's painful. And I'm guessing it didn't get better every time he repeated it. No, you know, pick one. You get one. Make it the best one and get out. Leave them wanting more. No kidding. (laughs) And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Join us on our next installment as we hear part two of Molly Miller's conversation with New York Times correspondent Lauren Herstick about the last days of the Weinstein trial and as we await the jury's verdict. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was reported and written by Molly Miller. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.